Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. You're listening to Queers a podcast about politics and culture with Simon Copland and Benjamin Riley. What was, what was the starting point of this bit of the discussion we were talking about? Is why, why is it that we focus oh, on... Why does it, why does it happen? Um... It's the 4th of October 2017. I'm Benjamin Riley. And I'm Simon Copland. Welcome to Queers. Each episode, we talk our way through questions on a theme, and this week we're talking about queerphobic individuals and queerphobic systems. But first, we just wanted to encourage people to send in questions for us to read out and attempt to respond on the show. We've done it uh, the last episode, and we're, we're doing it again this time. We've got a few questions from listeners, and we, we really want more of that to make this more of a dialogue, more of a conversation rather than us just uh, talking to ourselves. So please send us a question to queerspodcast at gmail.com or you can do it on Facebook if you want to comment on one of our Facebook posts or send us a message there. You can do all of those things. The impetus for this week's episode comes from the recently released quarterly essay Moral Panic 101, Equality, Acceptance and the Safe School Scandal by the author and journalist Benjamin Law. In the essay, Benjamin Law takes a deep dive into the safe schools scandal that dominated headlines in 2016. The focus of Law's essay is the way transgender children became the centre of the debate and the systemic social anxieties the debate revealed. Using Law's essay as a starting point, we want to talk about how and why queer communities focus on individuals as the source of and solution to social problems like queerphobia. Is this effective? And if not, how can we encourage a more systemic approach to change? Ben, on Twitter, you said you thought Law's essay was particularly excellent as it systematised a problem that is on every side reduced to some individuals are bad. Could you give us a brief background of Law's essay and explain what you mean by this? Sure. So uh, just to describe as quickly as I can what the essay is actually about, I think, first and foremost, it's, it's a really impressive piece of journalism. It's a forensic analysis of exactly how the Safe Schools scandal erupted, where it came from, how it went from being a fairly uncontroversial program based in Victoria to this this national headline-grabbing issue every day, uh, primarily in the, the Murdoch press in papers like The Australian. The essay ends up focusing on two main issues, I would say. It focuses on kind of moral panic around the vulnerability of children in society, so looking at I guess, safe schools as a corrupting force on vulnerable Australian kids and and what that kind of brought up for people. 
and then also on queers specifically as that corrupting influence. So things like queer theory as this dangerous ideology coming from queer communities that can corrupt our children. And so I think what I really liked about the essay is that it tries to engage with those two things as larger systemic problems that are emblematic of deeper kind of issues in society than simply there are a few homophobes in government who are who are trying to destroy this program. Yeah, I think um, I tend to agree with you that he did a really good job of the journalism in this in this essay. I think that the journalism was really excellent, and I think he did in particular a really good job of connecting the Safe Schools program to other sorts of campaigns or attacks on queer people. And so, where I tend to disagree is I I think that while he does a really good job of engaging with uh, the sort of top level, I guess. Um, attacks that came from the politicians, from the, the media and from sort of conservative elites, if you'd like. I don't think he does as good a job of engaging with what happened in broader society, I guess, or the general public to use sort of terms that are a little bit difficult and fluid and, and you know, that aren't always the best. But for example, there was constant polling throughout this scandal that showed that safe schools still had quite a lot of support in the in the general society, or at least had over 50% support and people supported the program. Um, and so I f- think that if we're going to engage in really systematic analysis of the program, it would be really good to have engaged with some of those details as well, and not just to focus on the the systems of homophobia that exist in the in, a, in sort of our elites, but also look at how that impacted you know you know systems of homophobia and queerphobia throughout broader society. And unfortunately, I don't think Benjamin does a really great job of that. Um, but I think that, you know, overall, it's a really good essay in dealing with the the issue and looking and sort of detailing it in a very strong journalistic kind of way. And I totally agree with you on that. And these are kind of, you know, these are challenging. I think you and I probably do disagree on, on what we took away from the essay in that sense. But I think they're... You know, it's challenging to know how to interpret polling like that, for example, given that most people probably hadn't even heard of the program before it came up and, and any kind of top, even top-down driven moral panic is going to galvanize people in one way or another. Uh, so, you know, like I, I, I suppose I, yeah, I would, I would take a different position on, on how successful he was in exploring those issues, but I but I take those points. Yeah, I think I'd definitely agree that it's difficult. I think what I would sort of liked is a little bit more depth sort of engaged with that difficulty a little bit more. It sort of felt a little bit to me that he said sort of said, well this has happened at the in, in the Australian and the and conservatives in the government and that highlights a system of homophobia and queerphobia that exists throughout society. And I don't think that he dealt with it in the depth that I would have liked dealing with some of those difficult questions. And that's, you know, but obviously, you know, happy to disagree with you on that one. <laughs> um, but let's let's go back to what we really wanted to talk about in this episode. Um, sort of in your tweet, you said that these sorts of problems are on every side are often reduced to the idea that some individuals are bad. Can you explain a little bit more what you meant by that in particular? Sure. I think that we see this in a lot of different issues that, Uh, I guess, political issues that queer communities engage with that people look for, I don't know, baddies, essentially. People look for specific individuals to blame for why things are as terrible as they are. And I guess put all of the... I I mean, to give... give, I mean, Safe Schools, I think, is a good example of that. Um, There was an anecdote in, in Ben Law's essay that I thought was particularly powerful about 
the the suicide of 13 year old Tyrone Unsworth who who was a, a high school student in Queensland who died after what turned out to be a, a really prolonged campaign of homophobic bullying he'd experienced at school and when people found out and when people found out what the school was the school received this kind of really intense campaign of harassment i guess against it against staff against teachers that you know he doesn't talk about exactly who it was but presumably queer people or, or allies were kind of really sort of blaming this school and saying why didn't you stop this and i think you know obviously that's a really understandable reaction on some level the the the, the death of of a kid particularly the suicide of a 13 year old is is a really really intense thing to deal with and affected a lot of australian queers very very deeply but i would interpret that sort of really direct harassment of the school for example as a bit of a misreading of that of that issue you know to kind of pin this on uh specific people or a specific institution in this case to be responsible for something like that to me is is more about wanting to find catharsis through blaming particular people than about actually product being productively able to address a problem as big as homophobia in society which is this huge 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 issue and I think we see it throughout the marriage equality debate as well that's happening at the moment that so much of the campaign is focused on the, the this idea that people who are voting no or people who are campaigning on the no side are just like bad homophobic people essentially rather than engaging with homophobia as an issue that is deeply ingrained in society deeply ingrained in our country and exists despite kind of levels of polling in support of uh, same-sex marriage, for example, that these are things that exist not in individuals but in the fabric of society and in ourselves as well. Yeah, I think um, that Tyrone Unsworth example was really quite upsetting um, also because later down uh, in the essay, Ben says that he sort of, on the side, says that the school was actually sort of considered to be quite good at dealing with transgender children, and that there was that they'd that sort of had some experience with that, and um, were shown to be quite supportive of that. And so these sorts of attacks that came against the school um, sort of came without any sort of it was sort of this sort of gut reaction, I guess, that didn't actually do any investigation to what this school was actually like, and and sort of sort of automatically blame someone for something. You know, it's it's like it's the idea of okay, we've got to find someone to blame for this, and then. This this instance, the school was the easiest person to blame, uh, or the easiest institution to blame. So all of all of a sudden, this school receives all of this sort of hatred, and I think that's really depressing. I guess to me, this goes like, to some broader stuff that we've spoken about a little bit in the past. Um, uh, this connects, I guess, to a little bit of a sort of individualized focus on um, queer pho- queerphobia that sort of frames this idea of we have the sort of goodies and the baddies and that there's this sort of very fine line between the two. And you definitely see that at the moment with the marriage equality debate between the yes and no voters, the sort of goodies, the yes voters, and the no voters who are the baddies and they'll always be baddies. And they're sort of, I guess, maybe using the language of the of Hillary Clinton in a way, the sort of the deplorables, you know, that we have this society mm. of deplorables out there and they are just, I guess, not as enlightened as us anymore or they're just not as good as good at us and and somehow it almost feels like in the language that's almost an ingrained thing now like you know we are more enlightened and they are just backwards and there's no capacity for movement in there it's just like an ingrained part of who these people are 
and that for me is really problematic for for a number of reasons. Firstly, I just don't think it's a good way of dealing with homophobia or queerphobia in our society, both at a systemic level and also at an individual level. If you automatically paint someone as a bigot and always a bigot, you're never going to get, actually convince them to sort of not be that person and to, to change their views on homophobia. But it also actually doesn't deal with the systems of homophobia that exist that, as you said, don't just exist in, you know, the baddies out there, but this exist in our government, in our state, and to an extent in ourselves as well. So maybe we should go into thinking about you know, how did we get to here? What, you know, is that is that worth a, qu- a question that's worth asking? Sure, you know, sure. How did we get to this stage where we're not looking at the systems of homophobia, but instead looking at, you know, that person over there is a baddie and th- they're the problem? I think it's incredibly understand understandable in a lot of ways. I mean, being queer in society can really suck. It can be exhausting. It can be so tiring to be constantly reminded that you are other, that you are different. You know, and and I think that that can exist on a really sort of like a low, like as as kind of constant background noise sometimes, rather than necessarily just like I don't know. I feel like we often talk about homophobia in terms of like someone yelling at me on the street, someone like someone experiencing violence, and obviously all that stuff exists and and is homophobic. But to me, the the thing that's most emblematic of I, I I'm almost want to say heteronormativity rather than homophobia, which you know, and they're sort of two sides of the same coin is yeah those those constant more kind of low level reminders of of difference and of of otherness and i think that to engage with these issues as the kind of enormous diffuse in some ways kind of i don't know vague problems that they are is really exhausting and confronting and terrifying and it can seem like way too big and way too insurmountable So it's understandable that people would be looking for targets that are a bit easier to deal with. So I think that's part of it. I think the other reason that thinking about homophobia or queerphobia as a systemic issue or any of these kinds of things as systemic issues is that it forces us to think about the ways that we are also complicit ourselves in those same structures. Like I think, you know, something I've just been thinking about a lot, I think, and have talked about a bit on the podcast recently in terms of the marriage equality debate is... Uh, respectability politics, something I just keep coming back to again and again and again, because I think that it is really one of the main vectors that queer people engage in or are complicit in queerphobia. And if we don't engage with these things as the systemic issues that we are, then we don't have to confront those ways that we participate in them. Yeah, I think those are some really good points. I think I want to add one extra point to that. And I think that this is also something we come back to, and it's the the question of identity politics and the sort of very individualised nature of identity politics. And when we've spoken a little bit in the past about the sort of almost essential, not the almost, but the essentialized nature of identity politics that sort of puts, uh, that, you know, you assigns identities to particular people uh, and you are that identity and then, uh, you know, it, through, through, through theories of privilege in particular sort of assigns that sort of um, the marginalized identities and the non-marginalized identities and has that sort of uh, the hierarchy that exists. And I've actually seen that laid out quite clearly the hierarchies that exist of identities. Um, And I think what that does is it sort of individualizes the issues based on identities rather than seeing it as parts of ideological or economic or whatever systems. So it's about the people who are not our identities are are sort of 
often treated as the baddies, the you know the the, the cis white dudes who are the baddies, um, and the people who are our identity are the goodies in this in this sort of system. So the the non cis, the non white folks, um, they they're, they're often framed as the goodies in that in that way, and. That is a very individualized process um, and one that sort of very much focuses on this sort of essentialized identity and doesn't deal, I think, with, you know, the potentials of differing politics that exist with people, the the potentials of issues around class um, and also the potentials that, you know, it's a systematic issue and that, you know, linking with things, what you're saying about like respectability politics, for example, that you know, we can play a role in these sorts of issues as well, in this sort of queer phobia that exists. Um, But when you sort of frame things through this identity lens, it can often just end up being, well, through our essentialized identity, we are also essentialized as one of the goodies. And through their essentialized identity, they're also essentialized as one of the baddies. Uh, And that, that line is sort of very, very firm and very hard to cross. I think there's an extent to which social media really kind of plays a role in that as well, you know, and in in the ways that you and I have talked about the relationship between social media and identity politics too, in that it adds this performative aspect to engagement with social issues too, where it, 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 it is not only important to see yourself as kind of not complicit in these bad things, but to be showing that that's the case to other people too. So I think that that kind of probably has enhanced the ways that this happens in our communities as well. Yeah, I think I agree. And I mean, social media is a really great vector for a lot of the identity politics that we've spoken about in the past. And the the stuff that sort of creates the goodies versus baddies stuff, it's really, really easy to, to promulgate through social media. And I'm sure our listeners have seen a lot of that. And you and I have seen a lot of that as well. I think the other thing about social media and the sort of way that this sort of plays out is it actually makes it a lot easier to have this sort of call-out culture that we've sort of talked about before. And so when you have a sort of global network of um, of social media in which people are posting stuff every day, in which um, there are celebrities saying stuff every day that you can point out or politicians saying stuff every day that you can point out, it's really easy to find examples of individuals or people that you can be outraged at. And, I mean, and again, the, the, the marriage equality debate is a really, really good example of that at the moment. You know, we have at the moment these individual flyers that are being posted or sent to uh, you know, very small parts of the country. So that you know, the the first one uh, that sort of really got lots of coverage was that um, "Stop the Fags" poster that was posted in some parts of Melbourne. Uh, mm. And it was a small poster that was posted in some very small parts of Melbourne. It didn't have wide coverage. It wasn't like it was sent to every Australian household. In fact, it was sent, you know, it wasn't sent to any. It was just around in some places. But social media gave it this sort of voice, I guess, or gave it this coverage that it never would have received without it. Um, and so it spread like wildfire. And suddenly, you know, I think millions of more people were seeing it than ever would have seen it with if it hadn't been for social media. And the sort of 24-hour rapid pace of social media allows for this sort of stuff to happen over and over again where you have you have examples of outrage and then more outrage and then more outrage because it can be spread so quickly and because you can find examples of it so quickly. Um, and, and I think what's interesting there is what it does, what social media in that space does, is it allows you to spend your time focusing on those individual examples 
rather than thinking about the systematic issues that underpin them, um, because it's so easy just to get caught in that cycle of just looking at the different examples of outrage. And it's not just a social media thing. I think it happens in our media as well, and it happens in a lot of campaigning organisations as well, where you get sort of caught looking at those individual examples over and over again, rather than investigating that systemic issue. Well, let's let's talk about those systemic issues. So I feel like we're kind of talking about them, but not really actually uh, addressing them directly. Uh, I mean, queer phobia is sort of the obvious one to talk about. What what do we mean when we say that queer phobia is this kind of big systemic issue that goes beyond individuals that we all potentially participate in? This is a really good question. And I'd like this is a big question and, and I think one that we could cover on an entire like whole podcast. Um, series of podcasts. <laughs> series of podcasts. I think it is what we're covering in a series of podcasts. Maybe the way to deal with this is to contrast it with what we've been speaking about in the sort of individualized approach. So how I see the individualized approach and sort of what we've discussed is seeing that there are those people out there who are homophobic um, and often treated in a way that they're sort of inherently homophobic and they're always going to be homophobic and we just have to oppose them and fight against them. A systemic approach actually says, no, well, homophobia or queerphobia is systemic to our society and to some of the structures of our society. Now, I would argue, and we've argued in the past in the podcast, so I don't think we need to go into full depth here, that homophobia or queerphobia is systemic to capitalism and that it is in an inherent part of that system. And uh, we can... Um, there's, there's a whole range of arguments that we could go into about why that is, but I don't think we have the time to... I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Do that today. But basically what we're arguing is that, that there's... There's a systemic um, element to queer phobia, and it's not just something. So, therefore, it's not just something that impacts in you know particular individuals. It impacts everything in our society. So, it impacts our government, or it is shaped by our government. It impacts, or is shaped by businesses, um, but also it impacts every person in our society. So there are elements of homophobia or queerphobia that almost exist within all of us, um, and our systems are shaped to sort of perpetuate queerphobia in both within policies and economic systems, but also sort of perpetuate queerphobia as an ideology that impacts all of us as individuals or all of us as a society. Do you think that's a kind of good summary of what we're meaning? I would want to go back briefly to what you said about capitalism, because I feel like that's potentially a bit of a red herring. I mean, I would never argue that queerphobia is like, I don't know, I think it exists independently of capitalism, but is reinforced by it. I feel like that's that's a a kind of, that's a different analysis slightly than saying that, like, it is purely a product of capitalism. I think that's like important to say. 
Yeah, actually, I think I think that's fair, and that's probably in my head was implied when I said it, but doesn't come across when I actually say it. Um, so, uh, you know, homophobia existed before capitalism existed, um, but I argue that capitalism also relies on homophobia to exist. So, yeah, those two things, that's how those two things interact. So um, getting, and you know, that goes to the argument that getting rid of capitalism doesn't mean necessarily mean getting rid of queerphobia, um, but it isn't, to me, a necessary um, function, or way to, you know... Sorry, it's a necessary me, step. It's, it's a necessary step, but it's not the only step. Um, but, you know, that's a, a potentially a full discussion that we can or have had at other points of time. We have, We have, yeah. Um, I suppose, yeah, I suppose I just wanted to kind of add that quickly in Yeah, in no, I here. think it's fair. Yeah, I mean, I guess it, it's difficult It's difficult to talk about, talk about any systemic ideological issues because they're so, you know, they are by their very nature kind of permeating multiple different levels. They're, they're, it's hard to talk about them in terms of causality because they're sort of all mixed up and intertwined with each other, you know, homophobia at, at ways that it's ingrained in government and in business and those sorts of things both produce and are produced by broader ideological systems of homophobia. I mean, for me, the sort of the way into describing homophobia as a system or queerphobia as a system, we keep using those terms interchangeably as we often do on the the podcast, which is, you know, problematic in some ways, but I'm just going to keep doing it. Um, I can't promise that I won't keep doing it, Uh, (laughs) is through thinking about heteronormativity, is through thinking about like... I guess, normativity generally and and ways that we have particular discourses in society and ideas in society about what is a normal person and what is kind of normal behavior and that anything that sits outside of that is other, is, is weird, is different, is potentially dangerous. And so, you know, heteronormativity, I guess, is the idea that uh, the default assumption is that people are straight, uh, have kind of normative sexual practices, um, have normative gender identities, you know, and so by definition, then queers are abnormal, kind of fall outside of that. And, you know, when I think about those more subtle ways and ingrained ways that I, for example, feel affected by homophobia and and experience it as a systemic uh, issue. It's in, I guess, the ways that my experience butts up against assumptions about my experience. And, And that can be from particular people. It can also be from systems as well, you know, the ways that that might manifest in how I am treated within an institution or, you know, my experience of interacting with media on a day-to-day basis. You know, it can be very... When I say assumptions, I I, I don't want to imply from that that I'm talking about the assumptions of people. I mean, the kind of assumptions of systems as well and the assumptions of structures. So you're talking about how your experiences of your life, I guess, butt up against the assumptions of how you should be experiencing your life. Is that what you're trying to say? Uh, or the the assumption of how people experience their lives. Yeah. The assumption yeah. about what it is to be a person. Yeah, okay. And so, you know, and so what we're looking at is... Particularly in relation to sex, sexuality, and gender. Yeah, so there's the assumption, the general assumption that people experience sex, sexuality, and gender through uh, sort of 
heteronormative lens, which is through the sort of idea of having being a heterosexual, being a monogamous heterosexual who wants to get married and have kids, uh, totally, and totally have vanilla sex and have know. vanilla sex, all of that kind of stuff, compared to the experience conform with who- your particular gender identity. Yeah, exactly. And and compare that to the experiences of people who don't experience that at all. And Well, I guess the point, I, I, I wouldn't quite put it like that because I feel like part of the point is that arguably no one experiences that. Mm, this is mm. this is the thing. Like the, the When I talk about everyone being uh, affected by these discourses and everyone being complicit in these discourses, it's kind of, it's similar to how I would talk about, say, masculinity, that, you know, masculinity for me relies on a particular ideal a particular archetype of the sort of perfect man who doesn't actually exist really it's more about measuring yourself against that and and building assumptions about that and in a similar way heteronormativity imagines an ideal that doesn't that isn't isn't really real that even people who might superficially look like they i don't know are, are married and you know, in a heterosexual marriage and and monogamous and blah 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 blah. Everyone's got aspects of their like nobody can live an archetype. I mean, that's kind of the that's kind of mm. the point of it, and that I guess damages different people in different ways. I would say it damages all of us, whether you're queer or not. But I guess queers are more profoundly damaged or profoundly affected by that because our we fall outside of that in more obvious ways. Yeah, and I think that brings up some interesting questions about respectability politics, which is what you brought up earlier, uh, in that one could argue, or I, I would argue, that respectability politics is really um, a, a form of politics that is about trying to access that sort of archetypal norm or trying to get as close as possible to that norm um, as we can. And so sure. you know, a lot of the marriage campaigns are really good example of this, where there has been a sort of active attempt to deny um, uh, the experience of queer promiscuity, for example. There's been in Australia um, active sort of um, denial of, of, of experiences of sexualities like polyamory or polyamorous relationships. Um, and people, uh, and I would argue, um, recently we've seen also some of the marriage equality campaigning that has thrown trans people under the bus. And we spoke about that in the last episode. And so a lot of that has been about okay, trying as best as possible to get as close as we can to that sort of archetypal norm. And that, to me, highlights the problem with it because instead of challenging the norm, it's saying what we all we need to do is just be as close as we can to the norm. And if we get to the, as close as we can to that norm, then we'll be accepted. Um, and that, you know, sort of highlights a, a range of issues with respectability politics in there. I think I also want to just go back because, I, you know, it's, it's worth thinking about, okay, so if we're thinking about homophobia or queerphobia in this systemic way, um, whilst at the same time thinking about how can we change, you know, the hearts and minds of people, of individuals who are, who are homophobic and or have homophobic views and, and, and you know, sort of acknowledging that, that is, you know, that homophobia is ingrained in all of us, but, you know, there, there are some people who mm. are maybe mm. a bit more blatantly open about their homophobia and, you know, and have that impact. How can we think about homophobia in a systemic way whilst also looking at sort of doing that cha- that process of change? Sure, sure. I, I have some thoughts about that. Before before I answer that, answer that question as if I can solve that problem straight away, um, uh, I just wanted to briefly go back to, to I think, why... Uh, queers particularly are affected by heteronormativity. I, something else just popped into my head that that came up when we were talking to Helen Razor, actually, 
that I think part of the other reason why queers are such a sort of foundational threat to those sorts of norms, I guess, is because of the ways that sex and gender and sexuality and the ways that we think about those things are shaped at a very, very early age and in very, I guess, psychologically important and psychologically fraught at a very psychologically fraught time and in those in contexts like family and school and i don't know like early childhood even that 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 space is very sort of malleable and very uh we are very vulnerable in that space and so this gives i think these issues a, a heightenedness a uh, a force and a, a sort of a sense of risk almost around them that that potentially other uh, issues like this don't have or don't have in the same way to to talk about like how do we engage <laughs> obviously we've, we've spent a bunch of time like you know defining and describing trying to describe systemic homophobia to, to talk about how to actually tackle it i think is is really challenging and could be the subject of an entire other podcast but for me i guess the the, the easiest way into this is and this might sound a bit cheesy but i guess compassion uh really trying to like understand that this is something that affects everyone and that is not necessarily something that people can choose to respond to in particular ways. So I think what I am always looking for from queer communities and around discourse around queer things is complexity, is is asking people to try to engage with a greater degree of complexity around how people interact with systems like heteronormativity so to kind of go you know how am i complicit in these things like how how is this other person how has their how have their experiences maybe shaped their views on this how are the same things that affect me around heteronormativity and around queerphobia also negatively affecting i don't know people i see as bigoted or people i see as as having views that i don't like so i think trying to build connections between people is is a really important starting point and that can be really really hard and really really confronting when you're on the back foot and when you're potentially traumatized when you're kind of experiencing abuse that's a big ask yeah it is a big ask but i think it is one that we sort of need to take on to an extent and i think the other thing that I would like to add to that is I think that there's also the potential to sort of take a step back and understand how queer phobia operates in our society and in turn then how people might have sort of developed sort of outwardly queer phobic views and positions and sort of being able to appreciate that as not sort of inherent to their evil being but actually as part of their upbringing or part of their uh sort of uh maybe a whole range of fears that they may have or some sort of social conditioning or whatever whatever it, it might be and not excusing that but sort of being able to yes. sort of engage with it at that level rather than to 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 engage with it at the sort of often very uh, I sort of hesitate to use this term but the often very emotional level that we do and I'm not saying that the emotional level is a bad reaction because obviously this is an emotional issue and so I'm not criticizing that I'm just saying that um that there's a potential just at times to step back from that and try to engage with it at another level and I think the other thing that we can do as well is to if we recognize queer phobia 
as a systemic issue, we can also start to connect it to other systems of oppression um, and see how those things are connected. And I'm not just talking about racism and sexism, although obviously there's strong connections between racism, sexism and homophobia, but I'm also talking about sort of economic oppression and systems of inequality, uh, economic inequality, etc. because those things are connected if we start to look deep enough. And to be able to draw those connections to say that actually our the queer phobic oppression has an impact on you as a as a sexual being and a person who wants relationships but it also is connected to all of these other systems of oppressions and if we can put those things together it sort of can create a stronger narrative that can sort of bring people on board and also can connect us to other issues that are out there now that is also a huge job and a very difficult job and not one that I would suggest is very easy um, but it is a way we can start to think about things rather than thinking about it at this individualized level it's worth worth aiming for we probably need to wrap up the discussion, but I, I just wanted to also really reiterate your point about not excusing people. I wouldn't want people to sort of take away from this that it's about, I don't know, feeling sorry for people who are doing really horrible homophobic things or, you know, go, oh, it's okay, they don't know what they're doing. I think I think understanding is really what, certainly what I would be advocating for, but that doesn't mean that doesn't mean excusing and we should be angry about these things a lot of the time and we should be fighting them. It's also important to understand where they come from and how they fit into a bigger picture. We also have another listener question. Anna sent her question to queerspodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much, Anna, for doing so. Um, And for everybody else, you can send your questions or comments too. Uh, So Anna asks, say we win the plebiscite and say the government, either now or through a changing government, legislates marriage equality. What steps do you think there are to go to get from marriage equality to actual equality? Ben, over to you. I, yeah, it's an interesting question. I suppose I would, I'm sceptical about the idea of equality generally, and I suppose whether it's, I don't know whether it exists, let alone whether it's kind of achievable. And even if it is achievable, whether it's something that we kind of should be looking for, I think what respectability politics points us to, and even a lot of what we've talked about today for me is that uh, it's important to engage with and understand these problems on a deeper systemic issue. And I think equality almost, the idea of equality almost precludes to me, the idea of changing the status quo—it's about um, fitting in, fitting in with something that already exists. So I think, so I'd, I'd say that first, but I feel like that's almost like denying the spirit of the question a bit. And I, I think that there's a, an interesting point there about, like, I, I guess, what next? Like, what can we kind of fight for and and move towards? And and what is it? What role does marriage equality have in in? moving us towards somewhere that we want to be but i might throw i might throw it back to you yeah i think that there's some real potentials around this and there's some real threats around this so i i agree with your analysis about equality but i think let's move past that and let's talk about what is what is the next and what are the potentials that we have next i think there's a real potential that if we win this postal plebiscite and we win it very strongly and marriage equality is legislated quite quickly afterwards which i suspect it would be um that we have momentum to move forward on other issues uh and we can look at that sort of issue by issue kind of approach, uh, which, you know, we could be looking at a whole range of uh, rights for trans people, we could be looking at discrimination that still exists in in federal legislation in particular, around the right to fire, um, uh, the right that 
religious institutions have to fire um, uh, queer staff members and to deny queer kids, you know, in, you know, enrolment in schools. Um, we could also be looking at issues around um, intersex um, uh, surgeries and medical treatment, which is a major underspoken uh, issue that's not spoken about here. But I think there's also the other potential as well to use this sort of momentum to really be looking at some of the systems of homophobia in our society. I think that the plebiscite is doing a really good job of highlighting where homophobia still exists, the way it, the role it plays um, and the way it's being expressed in our society. Uh, and by winning, winning big and building on that momentum, we can sort of start to be able to sort of not start to, but to continue to look at how we can tackle that. And I think that that could be a really valuable thing to do. For mm. me, the th- for me, the threat, however, is that what will happen is that we'll win marriage equality. And I think we spoke about this last week is that we'll win marriage equality and then everyone will lose interest in queer issues and lose interest really quickly because we'll, it will be considered to have been done. Uh, you know, that we're sort of finished and that that is equality achieved and all of these other issues and the issues of homophobia in our society no longer uh, are of interest or no longer of, of importance because, you know, we won this big thing. Clearly, homophobia doesn't exist anymore. Um, and so there's a real fine line to be able to celebrate, but also to say we've got to go further and we've got to be able to still continue to deal with, you know, the obvious queerphobia that exists. And that's, yeah, I guess that's that's really my fear as well. And I think it's on us really to and on queer communities to to try to make sure that that doesn't happen and to, to really kind of keep pushing this stuff even once marriage equality is done. Well, thank you, Anna, very much for your question. Uh, If you'd like to get in touch, you can do so at queerspodcast at gmail.com or you can also uh, ask questions uh, via our Facebook page. Um, You can either send us a message through there or comment on any of our posts um, and we'll try to answer your questions in future episodes. And really, we've had some fantastic engagement on the Facebook page since we since we launched it a few months ago. So thank you for everyone who's who's commented on posts uh, and and keep that up. That's really great. We really do try to engage on there as much as we can. Uh, as Simon said, you can email us queerspodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at queerspodcast. Simon and I are also both on social media. I'm on Twitter at Ben C. Riley. Simon's at Simon Copland. And he's on Facebook at Simon Copland Writer. You can also find the podcast on our website, queers.podomatic.com, or subscribe to us on iTunes. Uh, and please leave a review and rating as always as that helps other people find us and just a reminder that we have joined the earbuds network uh, which is a great new podcasting network that has started up in australia uh, and we encourage you to go check out their site both on facebook or their website uh, and check out some of the other podcasts that are on there Um, there's some great podcasts you should go and listen to yeah, really fantastic stuff. You should also, uh, we'll leave you with the reminder that you should go and tell a friend to to listen to the show. Word of mouth is probably the best way that we have to find new listeners. And we would love it if you could encourage anyone you know who might be interested in what we're doing to have a listen to the show. Thank you as always for listening. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with a new episode. Earbuds, Melbourne's podcast network. Earbudsnetwork.com. 
And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.